Janet turned from the sink and boom, all at once her husband of nearly 30 years is sitting at the kitchen in a white t-shirt and a pair of big dog boxers watching her. More and more often, she has found this weekly Commodore, she has found this weekday Commodore of Wall Street in just this place and dressed in justice fashion come Saturday morning. Slumped at the shoulder and blank in the eye, a white scruff showing on his cheeks, man tits sagging out the front of his tee, hair standing up and back like alfalfa of the little rascals, grown old and stupid. Janet and her friend Hannah have frightened each other lately, like little girls telling ghost stories during a sleepover, by swapping Alzheimer's tales. Who can no longer recognize his wife? Who can no longer remember the names of her children? Lightning recap. In Harvey's Dream by Stephen King, a man tells his wife about his scary dream. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. This is Short Story Short Podcast. My name is Christopher J. Garcia, that's C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R, Garcia. And I'm here today with... Baxter, comma, Christie. I love that now I know where we can put you in a library. Yes, uh, I do. <laughs> it is October. Technically, for me, it's Croctober. The first Croctober entry will be beef stew made tomorrow. But... While I'm simmering it in the crock pot, I want to read something that will give me the spooky shivers. What spooky shivers should I acquire? You should acquire some spooky shivers from the story Harvey's Dream by Stephen King. I, this Stephen King guy, he's going places. Yeah, I think he's got potential. You know, uh, I, don't, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough business but i think he's got potential agree and i think one of the beautiful things about stephen king uh this young upstart from northern maine is that he has he's not a writer of horror contrary to everything you know from the hundreds of novels of his you've read he is a writer of popular culture whose mode is horror I'd say he's also a writer of horror. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> well, this story is actually this this story is the perfect example of that because at the very beginning, in the first three paragraphs, you get references to big dog boxers, the little rascals, uh, Alzheimer's, which I assume is a band. Um, <laughs> you get all of these. No. <laughs> You get all of these references that he's constantly popping out at you. And I think this is actually him becoming full-formed. I think he has been a writer who has been building this idea of what a Stephen King story is. And I think once he worked through sort of the, the novels that were eating his brain, you know, once he got through Cujo, Carrie... Uh, maximum Overdrive, uh, all that sort of work that he did in the 70s, 80s, and up to about 95, 96. 
he started to get to this new idea that he is so ingrained in the zeitgeist of America that he could now mine that field so much more thoroughly. So if you read something like even just a one of the shorter chapters of The Stand or It, and you read this, it feels like two completely different authors. I can see where you're coming from with that. I, st- I still take issue. I feel like the, the addition of the this pop culture sprinkled throughout is just part of his style. I don't, I don't know that it necessarily defines him. Maybe it defines him. Maybe that's how his short stories generally tend to go. I haven't run, read like a ton of them. Okay. So I, I, it could be a, a thing he does in short stories in it, it, either conscious or subconscious attempt to kind of pull the reader in more knowing that you have less time in a short story to do that and also knowing that novels tend to be uh, longer lasting and better known as Mm. part of the culture and so therefore they need to be more timeless than a short story needs to be because in 50 years our big dog boxers still gonna be around uh is that going to be a cultural reference is or is that going to go right over people's heads so uh, that's that's my theory but i i don't know i don't know what he's thinking in his head when he's writing i could just pretend that i uh know everything yeah true and i think one of the really fascinating parts of this is he is writing in the present and the present in this case is 2003 um but this uh, usually he has to build and one of the things he's brilliant at is building the world that he's living in this is in fact i would go so far as to say this is the equivalent of magical realism to fantasy except for stephen king type horror i would agree with that for sure it, it definitely i think that's a good uh, a good analogy and, and we can put that on the uh, the sats next year so (laughs) love a good analogy yes absolutely yeah it's definitely it's definitely set in the real world so he doesn't have to do a ton of world building but he does have to establish these people in their family and in their home and sort of in their neighborhood to an extent and he does that very smoothly I I very much appreciate a good smooth world building that doesn't, you know, bang me over the head and say, this is where we are now. Get used to it. I appreciate (laughs) subtlety there. And like, I love uh, when he's pretty early on, he's describing uh, his wife here uh, and how her reaction to sort of the beginning of the interaction is uh, She's startled. How long has it been since he called her Jax instead of Janet or Jan? The last is a nickname she secretly hates. It makes her think of the syrupy sweet actress on Lassie. Again, more pop cultural referencing. <laughs> <laughs> it's this whole, uh, and then he even has an, a, a parenthetical aside confirming that the name of the little boy was Timmy. Timmy is his name. <laughs> yeah, it's got that stream of consciousness feel to it to the extent that we actually switch points of view in in as far as the mode is concerned at one point because we're so in her head that it switches to you uh i'm trying to find the place in the damn story uh come on 
it's I know if I search for you, I'm not gonna find it. But that's that's not a specific <laughs> enough search. Damn it. It's right before he starts talking about the dream, I think. Um did I imagine it? Did I dream that? Yes, you did. Have. I'm I'm sorry to mention that. Uh it's been a waking dream for about a year now. Oh my god, that's terrifying. I think uh, or maybe I'm in a coma. Uh just cut all this out or I'm just sitting here scrolling. Oh, there it is. There it is. I found it. I, I knew I wasn't crazy. You gaslighter, you. <laughs> so it's this paragraph where she, she talks about, you know, she's talking about the, the pictures of their children and everything. And she's kind of examining her life and where she's come to. And so she goes from, you know, somewhere in these pictures where Janet and the man she had married. And then she goes, then one day you made the mistake of looking over your shoulder and discovered that the girls were grown and that the man you had struggled to stay married to was sitting with his legs apart, his fish white legs, staring into a bar of sun. And by God, maybe he looked 54 in either of his best suits, but sitting there at the kitchen table like that, he looked 70, hell, 75. He looked like what the goons on The Sopranos, hey, called a mope. There's another one. <laughs> There's another there everywhere, man. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, <laughs> but you have that moment when she kind of i think the stream of consciousness becomes so stream of conscious that she turns it around to that thing do you ever in your head your inner monologue monologue do you ever say you do you ever call yourself you i don't have an inner monologue have you not noticed this are you one of those weirdos who doesn't have an inner monologue no, I don't," he said loudly. Uh, <laughs> I am, I am thrown off by such people. <laughs> but well, I have an inner monologue, and sometimes it goes to you. You know, oh, you wouldn't want to do that. No, that wouldn't be a very good idea. You, you should avoid that stuff. Like you know, it, that's me kind of quoting what my inner monologue might sound like. That's something that happens in my head sometimes, and I think that's when you're in your deepest inner monologue because you're literally when you switch to you instead of I, you're talking to yourself, like in the, in the most real form. And you're also disassociating yourself from your action. Yes. Yes. Which what I like about that is it makes it possible to, uh, there's a Seinfeld gag, uh, the real world me doesn't approve of the things the video me is doing. And <laughs> it's this idea that if we can recognize our mistakes, our path, our problems, and therefore uh, pull ourselves away from it, we sort of absolve ourselves at least a little bit of it, which I will neither confirm nor deny that I do. Um. Yeah, I think that the reason that it, he switches it over to that second person version of the inner monologue is maybe because this is where one of the spots where she's being the harshest on him and so that's where the dissociation comes in that she doesn't really want to recognize that she's having these thoughts so she just says that you as in the general public have these thoughts yeah that's a good point and i love there's so many things in this story that I love. Mm -hmm. And yet if, if you asked me 
what this story is actually trying to say. Because a creepy dream is in fact creepy. But I can only figure, you know, this idea of the creeping death of a, of a child of yours that is obviously coming and you know, but you also don't know or you think you know. My question is, it ends, of course, with an open-ended ending. Mm-hmm. Harvey says hello. Well, that's a, that's a Stephen King thing right there. <laughs> I, have a, I have a friend who refuses to read Stephen King. Actually, it's Amber, my co-host over on Old Timey Crimey. So I, she refuses to read him because she just does not like ambiguous endings. And she, she, the way she puts it, she's like, Stephen King doesn't know how to end a story. And I'm like, well, I, I, I would disagree with that. He just has a way, a preference, and it's not your preference. <laughs> yeah, I think he ends the story well. I think yes. that he ends it in a way that makes you go, hey, let's piss Amber off. And I think it really works. <laughs> yes, um, I think it would absolutely piss Amber off. I think that I should just send her this story and not tell her who it's by. <laughs> be like, you have to read this. And then she will be angry with me. <laughs> so. Tell her it's by Joe Hill, the elder. Uh. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think it ends wonderfully. I have to, there's this part of me that wonders, so much about particular writers during their process. And so I wonder when he ended it, when, you know, at that, at that moment of answering the phone, was that the end? Sometimes we write past the end and then we cut. Uh, sometimes we can't come up with an ending for three days. And then finally at three o'clock in the morning, we're laying there thinking about it and it comes to us and there goes the idea of sleeping. <laughs> so, and I just have to wonder, was it one of those cases where, uh, did, 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 did this story continue in some form uh, before he realized that he had written past the ending? I think you're right there. I think that's a good point. One of the things I do love, though, is that he answers the phone. Yes, yes. I think that's, that's really perfect because it, it's following the, the nightmare that he had, the dream that he had. And there's, it's, it's one example of these little things that happen that are done so nice and subtly in the, the way that King gets across to you that this dream he had is probably prophetic in some way. Now, and, I'm going to read it a different way, though. Oh, okay. See, I'm going to read it as he is, he has performed this dream for her knowing that the phone is going to ring that he basically wants to scare the pants out of her because they've come to this point in their marriage that he needs that vibe and he knows a call is coming and he'll get her into that that place and he'll have that moment because after he says hello we have no clue what happens. I don't read it that way because there's some stuff that's happening in reality that she's seeing, like the, the blood on the car and stuff like that. And I, I think that 
I think that it is prophetic. I, I, I like that we differ so strongly on this. And that just tells you how very ambiguous that ending was, that we could have such different reads on this story. Yeah. And I think one of the things about that is that everything he sees is through his lens. Because we, you know, all we ever know is what we're told in these stories. But this is such a narrow slice that we don't know what's happening around the edges. Okay. Although I do have to say, one of the things I do love is that uh, Trisha is, was a big fan of both Blackstone and Houdini, which does my heart good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, so one thing that I want to I want to kind of pick at that you said that we're just getting everything through his lens. I don't know if it's a product of them having been married so long and then maybe therefore they're thinking eh, along the same lines. But one thing I noticed King was doing that made me feel like there was more to this than a man being being cruel to his wife is the echoes that we get. So twice in the beginning of the story, we get Janet thinking things, the word thick. Why, when I was just thinking that life is thin, should it seem thick? And then a little while later, life is actually like a Jethro Tull song, thick as a brick. How could she have ever thought otherwise? And then very soon after that, when he starts talking, he says, I could see my shadow on the floor and it never looked so bright or thick. Bright's a funny word to use for a shadow, isn't it? Thick too. And so there's this echo of her phrasing. And there's also the fact that she had been focusing on his shadow and thinking about his shadow and here he's bringing it up. And that's all packed into one sentence that I feel implies that there's something more going on here on some other mental level for him that he's able to feed all this back to her that was going through her head. Yeah, I think you're right there. That's, that's an interesting point. Although our brains do create images to fill in things we don't understand, which may be what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what we're all doing our entire lives. <laughs> that's all we do is just fill in images to make the un understandable understandable. So, well, this yeah. has been short story cynical <laughs> podcast. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and I love there's so much repetition in here. And that's actually a good point about thick that I did kind of catch, but uh, there are references to, you know, constantly the, uh, we get, I think, three to the dramatics guild or the dramatics club, uh, the mentions of Jack's, all of these sort of, uh, also, Jax was a truly excellent French kisser, which is an utterly important detail. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he's doing with the style what so many great authors do is that they give you those things that become your touchstones in the text. And here he's using word choice for that often. Uh, thick is one of them, clearly. Uh, it's also, I think, an image that comes through you know, certain words have weight to them and i think thick is one of them uh there is another one that i am thinking of that i will not say that 
I'm yeah. fairly certain Christy is aware of. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you're thinking, and uh, and uh, I would just like to say that your your instincts are correct. Damn. Ah, oh, it feels so good to be alive. <laughs> uh, I also, I really like, there's a, a line that really gets me. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it, how deep imagination goes, he says finally. A dream like that is how a poet, one of the really great ones, must see his poem. Every detail so clear and so bright. And that's actually the line that really got me thinking of the whole, he's creating this image. And maybe it is that sort of chaos magic thing where he is willing it to happen as he is going but there's a there's a lot of power to that single paragraph that just oh gets but the me. thing the thing is she already had that thought chris dreams don't have to be logical do they dreams are poems from the subconscious she had that thought and then a few minutes later he says a dream like that is how a poet must see his poem there again with him repeating the things that are going on in her head. Hmm. I'm making my case. Wait a minute. Then I had it completely backwards. Harvey doesn't exist. <laughs> Wait, what? Hmm. She is making up this. I think this is a memory that she has molded. Oh my God, this makes so much sense now. Is she this has like this traumatic... the last season of Roseanne back in the 90s? Yes. <laughs> it was all a dream. <laughs> I think this is the a almost point for point. You have a traumatic experience and you're reflecting back on it. And by doing so, you are giving yourselves, you have these sort of, uh, what's the movie? Damn, it's the one where the where Brittany Murphy is buried underground. Uh, but it's a 90s movie. It's very good, actually. And this whole thing happens where she's ha having these reflections of this traumatic experience in the future, which she's then making into her repetition of, uh, it's a I'll never tell, something like that. But it's this back, back reflection. And it makes so much sense because it's that whole back and forth between her thoughts and then, huh, he's actually saying it. So if you want a non-supernatural reading of it, that would be my guess. <laughs> I think that's but, a really fascinating take on it. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm still sticking with mine, but I think that's a really interesting uh, idea that you've come up with there. Uh, that, and that could be, in, in its own way, could be Stephen King completely subverting without a lot of people even realizing it, the it was all a dream trope. Oh, that's a good point. And of course, we're going to ask him someday and he's going to say, yeah, I was just ripping off a Tolstoy story. Uh, <laughs> which honestly would be way more satisfying than either of our theories. That would be, that, I would be, I'd be pretty happy with that. That would amuse the, the heck out of me, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love, I love this story. This is another story where it is a style that I am fairly familiar with that is so satisfying in the little things it does. And the fact that it got me 
thinking so deeply, looking for little nooks and crannies and alleyways that I think really shows how just impacting this story is. Yeah, it really does. We, we really went down some alleys and nooks and crannies and nitpicked a little bit here and there, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had to, because if you don't, Mr. King has not done his job and we need him to do his job. America needs him to do his job. Oh, America doesn't know who he is. <laughs> they will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything else on this one there, Christy? Uh, no, I think we hit all of my, all of my stuff. Wow. Then, hey, Christy. Yes? What are we going to talk about next week? Next week, we are going to talk about... Next week, we are going to read Selfies by Lavi Tidar. And I'm looking forward to that. Lavi Tidar is a fantastic writer. And oddly enough, won the World Fantasy Award in uh, 2012 for his novel Osama beating, wait for it, Stephen King. Huh. Well, isn't that funny? I didn't, I had no idea. That's funny. Yeah, uh, it was. 112263 was King's novel that was up against him. Uh, okay. Also, some guy named George R. R. Martin. I've seen him around. He wears a hat. Oh, yeah, hat guy. That's right. He's, he's definitely known for the hat, nothing else. Totally. Yes. Well, in that case, then this has been Short Story. Short Podcast. Victory!